Thank you for joining us today. We'll be continuing our study of the book of Matthew. We'll be discussing what Jesus teaches in the Olivet Discourse about who will enter into the Millennial Kingdom. So if you'll open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 25, we'll begin our lesson. And why don't I open us up in prayer? Father in heaven, we're just so thankful for all the blessings you continue to pour out on us. And one of those is giving us this group that we can study your word and continue to grow in our relationship with you. We want to have a relationship with you. That's why we gather every week. And we thank you so much for your word that we're able to study, that you answer so many questions that we have. If we'll just take the time to study the words that you gave us. And that's what we're here to do, Father, this morning. And I ask that you speak through me and speak through any others that speak up today during our lesson and during our discussion so that we can all learn from one another. And we thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit to help guide us in our discussion as well as in our learning and our application of how we apply this to our lives. And we pray all this through your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 25 of Matthew. And this is the second and final chapter of what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Just to refresh, or if anybody wasn't with us last week, in chapter 24, that's where we began this discussion. And Jesus, if you flip over there real quick to chapter 24, verse 3, Jesus is answering the three questions that are posed by the disciples. It says in verse 3 of chapter 24, And as he, that's Jesus, was sitting on the Mount of Olives, that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so that's what we're talking about. And last week we spent a lot of time talking about the rapture and the tribulation and where that all comes from and the seven-year tribulation period. And so if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that lesson from last time. He's going to continue his discussion, and today it's more looking at who will then enter into the millennium kingdom. Remember, the thousand-year reign of Christ will begin at the end of the tribulation, which is the end of the seven-year tribulation, when Jesus comes again. That's his second coming. And then we will enter into the thousand-year reign of Christ. And if we have time at the end, I'll talk a little bit more about the millennium. But what he's going to be talking today in these parables is the people who make it through the tribulation out of those people who are then going to go into the thousand year reign, the millennium kingdom with him. While it's talking about those people and so we might say, well, chances are I'm going to die before we ever get to the tribulation or I'll be raptured out. So none of this really applies. So why do I need to even listen to this? Well, I think what Jesus is talking about, I think we'll see is also equally applicable to us because there's things that we need to do to prepare and to place our faith in Jesus Christ while we're alive before we die so that if the rapture comes, we will be raptured out. I think we can make that application from these verses as well. So let's go ahead and begin in chapter 25. And the first parable he's going to talk about He's going to talk about a wedding feast, and a lot of times the second coming of Christ is described as a wedding feast, with Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride of Christ. And so let me give you a little bit of background about weddings, the way they occurred back in the days when this was written. 
because I think it'll add some clarity to what we're going to be discussing. Back then, parents typically arranged the marriage. Most of the time, that was with the consent of the bride and groom. And they went through an engagement period, sometimes many, many months. And some function of that was to make it clear that the bride was a virgin. And usually then on the day of the wedding, once they went through this betrothal period, this engagement period, the groom would then go to the bride's house to claim his bride from her parents. Friends would accompany him to go and get the bride. And that's when the marriage ceremony would then take place at the bride's home. And then on the evening, on the day of the wedding, the groom would then take his bride home to his house. And that usually involved a nighttime procession through the streets. And the bride and groom would then consummate their marriage at the groom's home on the night of the wedding ceremony. And then there'd be this huge banquet that sometimes would last days, even as long as seven days. And that would take place at the groom's home. So that's the background in which this parable that Jesus is getting ready to talk about, that's the background of it. Chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven, so again, he's talking about the Lord's second coming, will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were prudent. So these are ten people They're a special group because they're part of the wedding party. They've all been invited to the wedding party. And you might think of these as people who profess themselves as Christians. They've been gathered to see Christ, the bridegroom, and they're there. They want to take part in the wedding feast. And so you might think of these ten virgins as professed Christians. But we see five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. Why is that? Verse 3, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. So they had these lamps that sometimes they were on a pole. They would run on olive oil to burn to make the light. Verse 4, but the prudent took oil and flask along with them. Verse 5, now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. So this may be describing the period between the first and second comings of Christ. What this is saying is that not all professed Christians have prepared. They haven't prepared their hearts. Oil sometimes represents the Holy Spirit. It may represent saving faith, a personal relationship that they had. Some of them had the oil. Some of them didn't. They had an outward appearance of professing Christianity. They had this outward appearance. They carried this lamp, but they had no oil. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have salvation They didn't have true faith, true saving faith. And so they're unprepared. Let's see what happens here. Verse 6, at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So no one expected him to come at midnight. And this is the second coming that's being referred to here. Verse 7, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. So the prepared virgins, they want to be faithful. They didn't want to miss the return of Christ. They didn't want to miss the return of the bridegroom. The ones who were foolish, they hadn't prepared. They just showed up. They wanted to do it their own way. 
And now they're asking for the prudent to share their oil. And I think one takeaway from this, if this truly is salvation in the Holy Spirit that the oil is representing, you've got to do that on your own. It can't be bought. You can't transfer it, get it transferred from somebody else. It can't be shared. It's a personal relationship that you have to have. Like I said, throughout the Bible, oil is used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So perhaps those who had no oil were actually unbelievers. And I think that's what we're going to see. But prepared guests, they'll be accepted, as we'll see, into the banquet. I think I already read nine, but I'll read it again. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And so we've been warned to prepare. There's lots of people who are delaying. It's going to be too late. When Christ returns or at our death, it's too late. We've waited too long. So the door was shut. Verse 11, And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, and he said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. So if you're not committed to Christ and prepared when he comes before you die, it's going to be too late. Even though this is talking about when he comes at the second coming, and this is specifically talking about the people who are not prepared and don't come to faith during the tribulation, I think it's also applicable to us. The opportunity is going to be over, either when we die or when Christ comes, wherever we end up. This shows what will happen to unbelievers and unbelieving Jews at the end of the tribulation and before the millennial 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth begins. You've got to be prepared, and preparation means placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and that's applicable to us today. The prepared will be saved, and they'll be accepted into the millennial banquet. It can't be done at the last minute. The unprepared, they'll be unsaved, and they'll be excluded from the wedding. And so he concludes this parable by saying, Be on the alert, for you do not know the day or the hour. So we must place our faith in Jesus Christ now and build on our personal relationship with him. That's being prepared. This parable causes me to think how many people we know, how many people are even members of our church. Hopefully there aren't any people who are part of this study that we meet together every week that only have an outward appearance and they haven't given their heart to the Lord. This is what this is saying. It's so important that we're prepared and that we truly have evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to change us and as we apply what we study through these scriptures. So now he's going to give another parable. Before I leave this one, I also just want to remind you that when we were studying Matthew 22, because that was another wedding feast that we saw where the guest didn't show up with the proper garment. And we talked about that during our study of Matthew 22. So you can go back and listen if you missed that. He was invited, but he was not prepared. And he wanted to come his own way. Rather than coming in clean clothes in the wedding garment, he didn't come in the proper garment. And so he was rejected. He was not allowed to come into the banquet. And I think that parable also was speaking to perhaps even some of the Jews, but even people today who think they can show up just because they were Jewish, that they'll be invited in. They can come their own way. There's plenty of Gentiles, non-Jewish people today who believe the same thing, that they want to do it their own way. And we can see what happens. They'll be rejected. So let's look at the next parable, beginning in verse 14. For it, what is he talking about? The kingdom of heaven. For it, 
is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents. Five talents is a lot of money. Just think of it as that. It may be equivalent to a lifetime of earnings. So it's a lot of money. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. So everyone is given opportunities, and we all have different talents and different gifts as believers. So there's a wide range of responsibilities that are given to each of us. You know, you can even look at the disciples. They each had different levels of responsibility. James, John, and Peter, they were really the inner circle when you look at the way the disciples worked, and they were given different responsibilities than some of the others. Each of us, as Christians, we're all given different responsibilities, each according to our own ability and the gifts that God has given us. So let's see what each of these three did with the opportunities and here the talents that they were given. Verse 16, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. This, to me, sounds kind of like commercial transactions over a period of time. But he was very diligent. He used the ability that God had given him in a way to invest the talent that he had been given and build upon it. And then we see verse 17, in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. So these first two, they show faithfulness in their duties to their master. They serve God to the maximum of their ability with great privilege brings great responsibility for these folks as well as us. Verse 18, but he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So this one shows a lack of faith. He didn't trust in the Lord. He certainly lacked obedience. He was more concerned for himself than trying to use the gifts that God gave to help build the master's kingdom. Verse 19, now after a long time, The master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. I think it's interesting that Jesus says now after a long time. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. This might be an indication that Jesus wasn't going to return for the second coming for a long time. Just like we might say in the prior parable where we saw there was a long delay before the bridegroom came out. I think that's an indication that there was going to be a long time before the kingdom of heaven in the second coming of Christ actually took place. Verse 20, And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. I don't think this one with the five talents is boasting. He's just stating the fact that this is what he did. He's saying, Master, this is what you gave me. I'm now giving back to you what I was able to do with what you entrusted me with. And Jesus praises him for his attitude, for his faithfulness. I don't think he's praising him necessarily for his accomplishment in doubling the five talents to five. It was more his attitude. He was very faithful in utilizing what had been given to him and utilizing it up to the fullest and best of his ability. Then verse 22, the one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. 
So the first two used what God gave them to serve him, to serve the master, and to build the kingdom. And his master said to him the same thing. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So you see, they both received the same praise from the master. And it's not a comparative thing against each other. Well, gosh, this other guy had five and made five. I gave you two. You only made two. It isn't anything like that. He was entrusted with two because that's what God gave him. And he did the best he could with what God gave him. He lived up to 100% of his potential. This is showing that they now enter into the millennial kingdom and they will have responsibilities, both reigning with Christ in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years and beyond. And so their reward and their responsibilities in the millennial kingdom are based on their faithfulness. It's not the amount, and it's not compared to others. It's what did they do with the opportunities that they were given. This has nothing to do with earning your salvation. He's specifically talking about who makes it through the tribulation and will then go into the millennial kingdom, but it's also applicable to us. What are we doing with the gifts and opportunities that God has given us to help build his kingdom? So let's see what happens to the third. Verse 24, and the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So clearly this third, you can tell by his statement, he demonstrates that he doesn't really know God. He's blind to God's grace and mercy. And he never surrendered himself to God. He doesn't believe that whatever he might do with that one talent, God, his master, would share with him any blessings from it. So he did nothing with it. He was lazy. He didn't expect to receive any blessing. And you can just tell by what he said, he doesn't have much respect for the master because he's wrong in his belief about the master. But that's what he thought about him, that you're a hard man. You reap what you don't sow. You're a bad master. And so 25, he says, I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. So he didn't do anything to advance the kingdom of God. He wasted his talent that God had given him. And he wanted to do it his own way and focus on himself. So let's see what the master says to him. Verse 26, but his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. First of all, this isn't true about the master, but what Jesus is saying is he's using this third person's own words against him to say, look, since this is what you thought about me as your master, since you thought that I reap where I didn't sow and I gathered where I had not scattered any seed, then if that's truly what you thought about me, well, then you should have at least gone and done something. Look what he said. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. So he's saying, if that's what you thought about me, the least you could have done is gone and put it in the bank and let me get some interest. He's saying, you are lazy. You didn't have any faith in me. You didn't have any respect in me, and you didn't want to do anything to try to help build the kingdom. And so look what he does. Verse 28, therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents for to everyone who has shall more be given and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have even what he does have shall be taken away. 
and cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is what Jesus is saying, is that those who don't place their faith in Jesus and don't use the opportunities that God has given us and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and to grow, because if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And your works, as we'll see here in a minute, are going to manifest themselves in a way that show our faithfulness. What they did was they were able to allow, because they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit then came in and allowed them to do good works that evidenced their faith. And these are tests of faithfulness to see who then would enter into the kingdom. The unfaithful are going to be rejected, and they will have squandered their opportunities and their lives and given up eternal life and reward with Jesus Christ. Now let's look, beginning in verse 31. And by the way, there's some commentators that view verses 1 through 30 are actually talking about who in the nation of Israel, Jewish people during the tribulation, which of those will then enter into the millennial kingdom, those who come to faith that are Jewish during the tribulation, which of those will come into the millennial kingdom. And then verse 31, as you'll see, it's going to talk about nations. And so maybe it's talking about the Gentiles. There's others that say, no, it says all the nations, as we'll see, are gathered before him. That's talking about not only Gentiles, but also Jewish people, anyone who comes to faith during the tribulation. But again, all this is applicable to us even today. Verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so this is the second coming, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations, so you see where they're getting this, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Back then, in fact, it's even done somewhat today. They would allow the sheeps and the goats to graze together, and then they would separate, and they, they would come down a chute, and the herder would separate them from one another. And so he's using this in this parable as an analogy that Jesus is going to sit on the throne and he's going to separate everyone then who is still alive at the second coming, who have made it through the tribulation, he's going to separate them. Verse 33, and he will put the sheep on his right. The right signifies a place of honor. So these are going to be believers. And the goats on his left, the goats are going to be rejected from then being able to move into the millennial kingdom at Christ's second coming. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This clearly is saying you were chosen before the foundation of the world. This again is talking about predestination and we've talked about that before. I won't go into that today due to our time constraints. But if you want to look at some other verses, you can go look in Romans 8. Really, it begins probably about verse 28 and verses that follow. There's a little bit there that talks about this as well. He says, verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, so these are the believers, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? 
And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. This is really interesting to me because what Jesus is talking about is just routine, day-to-day kindness to others. Over in John 13, 35, we've looked at this many times before um, because this is the test of whether you have faith and you truly are a Christian. It says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how do people know you're a Christian? The world is going to judge us and we're going to be judged by the love we show to others. That's the final test of discipleship and being faithful to Christ is the love we show to others. And what I love about this, these are believers. It says the righteous will answer him. So these are believers. These are Jews and Gentiles who came to faith during the tribulation. But again, equally applicable to us. They didn't even remember meeting the needs of the Messiah is what they're saying. They're very humble. These are righteous people. They're humble and they're selfless and their works evidence their faith. It's the Holy Spirit that worked through them. It wasn't their works that earned their salvation. We know that's not the way it works. I'll take you over to Ephesians in just a second. But the righteous, they're imputed to be righteous on the basis of their faith. And then their faith with the Holy Spirit working through them, their faith is demonstrated by their works. Let me show you a couple of verses here just to clarify this as well. If you go over to Ephesians 2, go past all four Gospels, keep going right, go past Acts and Romans, and it's after Corinthians. It's right after Galatians, Ephesians 2, and I want to begin in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, this is talking about even before the foundations of the world, God prepared us to have good works. And it's not our works. It is a result of the Holy Spirit working in and through us when we become Christians. That's where good works come from. It's nothing we did. In fact, our salvation, our faith, it's nothing we do to earn it. It's a gift. It's a free gift. But our faith is evidenced by the good works that happen because we're incapable of producing good works. It's really the Holy Spirit doing that in and through us. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on his left. So now these are the unbelievers. These are the goats. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. So not loving others is basically rejection of Jesus. Let's see what they say. Verse 44, then they themselves, so these are the unbelievers, also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And it's interesting that they say Lord, because you can go over and look in Philippians 2, verse 11. It says everybody eventually will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. For these, it's too late. It's too late. And they don't have belief anyway. They'll still acknowledge, oh my gosh, here's the judgment. 
Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, meaning these unbelievers, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So when we stand before the king, it's going to be too late to change your destiny. While this is specifically talking to people coming out of the tribulation, this is equally applicable to us today. If we die before the rapture happens, well, it's going to be too late. What we've done here is going to dictate our final destiny. We're either going to be in eternal life with Jesus Christ, or we're going to suffer eternal punishment. And you notice it says eternal punishment. That means the punishment is for eternity. Everybody lives into eternity. And there'll be two groups. You'll either be with Jesus Christ, you'll be there with him, you'll be with God into eternity, living a just unbelievable eternal life, or you will be eternally separated from God. So let me just hit a couple of things before I sum it up, and then I'll open it up for questions. While we're hitting the rapture and tribulation, and now I'm going to just mention the millennium a little bit because a lot of people sometimes have questions about that. We're just skimming the treetops here, but I at least want people to appreciate and have an overview of the end times here that we're talking about. First of all, let me say, you can go look at 2 Peter 3.9, and God desires everyone to be saved, but unbelievers who reject Christ, they're not going to have the Holy Spirit to enable them to do good works, and they're not going to have any fruit to show that they believe, and there isn't going to be anything they can do at the last minute to change their eternal destiny. A person's works demonstrate your faith as the Holy Spirit works in and through us. And so while these verses are talking about the rapture, and as I mentioned, there's various views on when the rapture occurs. I pointed out last time that I believe believers are raptured out at the beginning of the tribulation. You can go look at those verses that we studied last time in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It says the dead will rise first, so dead believers go up. This is at the beginning of the tribulation. Go up, join with Christ then those of us, if we haven't died at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, we go up and join with Christ. That's not the second coming. That's the rapture. He doesn't come all the way down to earth at that time. There's then this seven-year period of tribulation of really difficult times. When we get to the end of the seven years, Jesus is going to return the second coming. We will be with him as believers and Satan is then going to be bound for a thousand years, tied up. That's when the millennial thousand-year reign of Jesus will begin. That thousand-year reign of Jesus, the purpose of that, it's called the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign after the tribulation. The purpose of that is to fulfill the rest of the covenants that God had made with the nation of Israel. Even though they occupied the land, some of the land that was promised to Abraham, they never in history have held the entire area that was promised to them. And so that's part of the fulfillment of the land covenant that was given. It will also be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant where Jesus will reign over Israel and over earth for a thousand years. So the main purpose is just to fulfill those prophecies that were given to Israel and the promises made by God, really to the whole earth. Those of us who joined with Jesus before the tribulation, we will reign with him during the thousand year period. 
We saw there will be people who came to faith during the thousand year period. And by the way, we will not have mortal bodies then. We will have our glorified bodies in reigning with Christ at that time in the thousand year period. The people who make it through the tribulation and move into the thousand year millennial reign, they will have mortal bodies and they will continue to multiply. When we begin the thousand year reign, there's no Satan. Only believers go into the thousand year reign, as we've seen. Uh, Non-believers are rejected. We talked about that today and last time. So it's all believers go into the thousand year reign. Those who were alive at that time will continue to have children. And what will then happen is at the very end, I think part of this shows that even with Satan gone, and it's going to be a very peaceful time, but we still have sin. The mortal folks still have sin. And what will happen is Satan is going to be untied and released at the very end of the thousand-year reign. There will be some of the offspring of these believers that have mortal bodies that moved into the thousand-year period that will actually join with Satan to try to rebel against Jesus Christ. The battle doesn't last very long at all. And Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. You can think of this as sort of like two judgments because the first judgment that we've been discussing the last two sessions was the judgment as to who was going to move into the millennial kingdom. You can think about that. But then the final judgment is called the great white throne judgment, and that will be at the very end, and that's where then all non-believers dead and those that rose up during the millennial kingdom will be thrown into the lake of fire for their lack of faith, and that's then when the new heaven and new earth will happen, and all believers will then live into eternity with Jesus. So that's a very high level summary. It's way more complicated. I don't want to say complicated, but it's beyond my comprehension. We've been given a little bit of a view of this, but our simple minds just can't even comprehend what it will mean to actually go into the millennial kingdom with Jesus and then eternity, and it's just going to be magnificent. So let me just try to summarize our lesson today. We need to be diligent and faithful. We need to utilize all the gifts that God has given us and use them in a way to help build the kingdom of Christ because it's clear when Christ returns, there is going to be two groups. There's going to be one group headed to eternal punishment, another group to eternal life. And we can't use our faith in a way to save anybody else. We can't share it with anybody, but we can certainly use our talents and our gifts in a way to help build the kingdom and share the gospel with others. Making those types of faithful investments in the kingdom, when we do that now, it's going to bring glory to God. It's going to bring blessing to us, not only in this age, but eternal rewards and greater responsibilities and privileges into eternity. So I want to leave you with one question. What has God uniquely prepared you to do to help build his kingdom? What are you doing, if not every day, every week? What is it that God wants you to do to help build his kingdom? So let me open it up for discussion and any questions you might have. How do we apply this in our own lives? Well, Larry, I'll toss one out there that, you know, sometimes I struggle with. That is, have I measured up? Have I done enough? There's always more to do. And so I ask myself, have I done everything that I am called to do? That's a question I struggle with sometimes. Well, the answer for you and for all of us is no. We all still have sin. 
it's doubtful that any of us live up to 100% of our capability that God gave us. And we're all going to have to stand before Jesus and have a little bit of life review about what we did with the opportunities that he did give us. But that doesn't mean we should then say, well, I haven't lived up. I'm not going to make it. I think what Jesus is saying is the way to know that you are saved is do you have any fruit? Do you have any good works in your life? Because the only way you can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so can you point to things that the Holy Spirit has accomplished through you? And that should give you a great sense of peace when you actually see the Holy Spirit working in and through you, because that's evidence of faith. But I think it's also telling us we need to be, and you're pointing it out, we all need to be more focused on allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our life rather than just trying to live our life and fit in with culture and live our life and, you know, we got our ticket punched and therefore I don't need to worry about this. I think there may be a lot of people that we know that's what worries me and breaks my heart is the people that I probably know that end up being like these five foolish virgins that we read about. On the outside, they appear to be Christians, but they're really not, and they've deceived themselves. That just breaks my heart, and that breaks Jesus' heart. Larry, this makes me think of the opportunity that happens every day, though, because we have a chance to be kind to others every day. It's a new day. It's a new opportunity. It's a new chance to serve God with the people around us. Absolutely right. We have opportunities. I believe we have opportunities every day to be a witness to somebody, not just by running up and down the halls and screaming out chapter and verse, but by the way we show love to others. I want to show you some verses that really make a lot more sense to me after I spent some time studying Matthew 24 and 25. Flip over to the book of Revelation, and you'll remember back when we were studying some of this with this group many years ago, there's letters written to these churches. And flip over to Revelation chapter 3, and let me begin in verse 14. This is a letter written to the church in Laodicea, and it says, Write, the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. So this is God talking. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I think what this is saying is God wants all of us to become faithful Christians, place our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Think of cold as unbelievers. They are people who have clearly rejected God. I don't want anything to do with him. I don't want to have anything to do with God. In the hot are Christians, faithful Christians who are trying to live their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit the way God wants them to live. Those are the hot. The lukewarm, I think, are the people who just have this outward appearance of being Christians, of having faith, when really their hearts, they've never spiritually committed themselves to Jesus Christ. And I don't think he's saying, well, I'd rather them be total unbelievers and just reject me. I think what he's saying is it saddens Jesus so much that somebody would be kind of in the middle, that they sort of have this outward appearance of being a Christian, 
but on the inside, they're not faithful. They don't have saving faith. He would rather have somebody just reject him than somebody be deceived somehow and think that they're going to have eternal life when they're just totally deceived. He doesn't want anyone to reject him, but it really pains his heart when he sees these people that are in the middle. I don't know if that resonates with you, but I just wanted to kind of add that in. Larry, the thing I struggle with is we're supposed to love others. We all do. I think the thing that I struggle with, and I think all of us probably do at times, is loving others that aren't like us, loving others that might not do things that we find acceptable or what have you. And that's the hard part. When you know you're supposed to love them, and it's really hard for you to, to understand them, much less love them. Yeah, that's the part where we start judging others. We want to sort of show outwardly we love them, but internally we're judging them, how they don't measure up to our own standards. It's hard not to at times. Yeah. And, you know, that's where I struggle. Yes, I think we all do. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this podcast and my weekly blog by sending a text to 56316, type Larry in the text box, and hit send. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.